Snap Studios. Step Judgment is brought to you by Progressive, where customers who save by switching their home and car save nearly $800 on average. Quote at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. This is Snap Judgment. Snap Judgment. Now, for our first piece, sensitive listeners should know that this story does contain graphic imagery and violence. But it starts on the basketball court. Alex Awumi is an international basketball player. He's played in France and Macedonia. And for this story, he takes his basketball career to North Africa. As soon as I got on the flight and I said, man, what am I getting myself into? Because all I knew about the people is what I saw on TV, about people going crazy, buildings getting burned. And uh, when I was on the flight, I had a lot to think about. And I was like, man, I'm about to land in Benghazi and see a bunch of people who don't like Americans. Alex Awumi has just touched down in Benghazi, the second largest city in Libya. He's greeted by dozens of fans because, well, he's here to play basketball. The fans follow him to a waiting car, where Mr. Ahmed, his team president, drives him through the streets to his new apartment. Outside, looking in, you know, when you pull up to the street, it looked run down. I thought that, you know, my, my stay here would be very short. But when I got up, we got into the building, got up to the top floor. It was basically... Just this million-dollar apartment, just disguised. As soon as I walked in, it was beautiful. It was like everything was just shining. Thousand-dollar Versace plates, couch with gold trimmings on the edge. Flat screens everywhere. You know, the kitchen tile was just extraordinary. And, you know, the smile on my face was just ridiculous. While Alex is checking out his palace, something catches his eye. A portrait. You see this huge portrait, literally half the size of a wall, maybe from like the 80s or something, you know, in like a military outfit. It's a picture of Muammar Gaddafi, the colonel. And that's when I realized I was playing for the team owned by Muammar Gaddafi and the Gaddafi family. I was just in shock, you know, I was in shock. You see, Alex was born and raised in a small village in Nigeria. You know, Muammar Gaddafi did a lot for the African nation. This guy, some of the poorest countries in West Africa, North Africa, he helped rebuild with his own fortune. My dad, you know, had a portrait of him and Nelson Mandela. You know, these were two guys that, <laughs> you know, as a kid, you wanted to strive to be. And um, that's how I saw him as a child. But um, growing up, as I moved to America, I didn't really pay attention to news because obviously I was a teenager doing other things, you know. <laughs> and, you know, what I knew as a child is what I wanted there knowing. Soon, Alex heads over to his first practice. He's nervous and excited to be playing for the royal family. The team is called the Al Nasser Benghazi, and it's made up of Alex, one other international player, and the rest Libyan locals. When I got there, you know, it, it wasn't like a typical practice. People were depressed. People just looked scared to be there. 
Alex pulls Mustafa, the other international player, to the side. He asks him, Why are the guys scared to make mistakes? Why are they scared to do this? Why are they scared to do that? And he told me, he said, we, we haven't been winning. Mustafa admits that their team is on a losing streak and that when they lose, they don't get paid. Well, they do get paid. A visit from the Royal Guards. You can see, you know, there were, there were actually a couple of black guys, a couple of bruises on people's bodies. Obviously, people get bruised up in a basketball game, but, you know, some of this stuff you could just tell was done from some other type of damage. If we lose, do I get pushed against a locker in the, in the changing room? Alex's first game day arrives. His team flies to Tripoli to play its rivals, the best team in the league. The 5,000-cap arena is overflowing with fans and anticipation. We had some crazy fans. I mean, they're throwing toilet rolls, screaming, yelling, burning these big old trash cans inside the arena, which they let them do. I, don't, I, I never understood that. As soon as I'm warming up, you know, a man walks in the lower doors of the arena where the teams come out. He has like, all these bodyguards and military with him. My teammates, you know, they kind of get nervous and, you know, stop playing and they're looking at him. And then he walks up to me and he introduces himself as uh, Saudi Gaddafi. Al-Sadi Gaddafi is one of the colonel's sons. We just had a conversation about how they were waiting for me, telling us that we need to win the championship. As I was talking to Al-Sadi Gaddafi, he pointed up to the uh, VIP area. At the top of the arena, in a roped-off section swarming with even more bodyguards, is Colonel Gaddafi. I made eye contact with the colonel. He nodded. The whole arena saw the eye contact. My teammates were talking about, like, oh, he never comes to games. It's crazy how this is your first game and he shows up. It was kind of nerve-wracking. This team was his baby. They wanted to win. Winning was in their bloodline. So, you know, you don't want to lose when it comes down to something like that. It was a tough game. You're in the region in Northern Africa where every player is literally athletic because you they might not have the same skill set you have, but they could run just as fast as you. They could jump just as high. They're just as strong. But the advantage we had is that our locals were better. They were quicker. They were hungrier. We eventually won the game. I played really well. 19 points, 9 assists, and 8 rebounds. I was the last one to walk into the locker room. Everybody had a smile on their face. Our team managers were high-fiving people. Teammates were hugging each other. People are back to getting paid again. You know, we, you would thought we won the NBA championship or something. Everything became better after that point. You know, when you win, you know, winning carries everything. After the big win, Alex becomes a baller. He gets huge bonuses and saw a poster of himself on almost every street corner in Benghazi. Wherever he goes, people would crowd around him and scream his name. Hundreds of fans would come just to watch him practice. I was like a local celebrity. It was crazy. You know, I was going to these local restaurants and order freshly made pizza and some chicken for dinner. And they told me, like, you don't have to pay anything. I was begging them, like, no, please, let me pay for it. They're like, no, we can't let you pay. Okay. Outside my building, there were always little kids playing soccer. You know, when I had two or three minutes, I would kick the ball around with them before I had to go to practice. When I came back from practice, I would always have some Snickers bar, some M&Ms or something where I could just hand out to them all the time. Fans don't flock to Alex just because he's Benghazi's basketball hero. 
Alex is also part of the Gaddafi family, and because of this connection, he can enjoy what the Gaddafi family enjoyed. There were perks, man, I'll be honest with you. When I needed a brand new TV for my apartment uh, with HD, I need all these satellite channels. I need to be able to watch, you know, the Kardashians when I'm home. I wasted everyone's money. I wasted everyone's everything, and I feel bad. And literally, it came just like that. Sometimes, you know, it'll be cold. You need a little space heater. Make a call. It comes through. It got to a point where I was, like, kind of abusing my power, to be honest with you. <laughs> because I was on Gaddafi's personal team, I felt taken care of security-wise. I think the people that were always around me wouldn't let anything happen to me. When Alex leaves his royal bubble, hangs out with his teammates, and visits their homes, he sees a different Libya. Like the projects type. I thought basically when I go into a neighborhood and, you know, I see soldiers carrying guns, I thought this was normal. I was kind of nervous of taking them to where I live because, you know, if they would have saw that, it would, you know. Me and my teammates always had conversations about the colonel and his family. It was, it was, mixed, it was mixed emotions, you know, people saying that he, he's not doing anything for the country anymore. He's not giving back to the lower class in the country. Uh, everybody wanted him out as leader. But my mindset and everything I learned about it still will stay the same because I was taken care of. It was a Thursday morning, and the night before, we had a very intense practice. I went home that night and got some rest. And I was supposed to get up at 9 a.m. to do, like, a private workout with my coach. And my driver was supposed to come pick me up. Um, never, he never showed up. I was like, you know, let me go upstairs and see what's going on from the rooftop. So I go up there, I see, you know, hundreds of people, basically outside the street. It was nonviolent protest. Nobody had any, you know, guns or knives or whatever. You know, they had a couple flags out there. You know, I'm like, okay, this has been going on for the whole week, so, you know, nothing has really changed. A couple minutes later, now I see military personnel on the other side. I see a couple jeeps, a couple guys, you know, guys with the same guns that they had when I seen them around town. I, I thought this was just regular. But what was unusual was that the uniforms were different. I have never seen these guys in this type of mustard yellow uniform. But they were black like me. So they, they, they're driving closer to these, to these protesters. Young boys, young men, you know, a couple of women out there. And out of nowhere, a guy on top of a of a jeep just literally, I mean, just just rains fire in, in a crowd of a, a couple hundred people. And um, you know, you know, I just saw, you know, no remorse. The guy just keeps going, and at this point, it's crazy because people are running away. And as they're running away, you would think he would stop. But he just kept going. He just kept going, kept going, kept going. I, th I literally thought I was dreaming. And I remember just falling to the floor. And, and the sounds just from this, this large gun. The gun felt like it was right next to me. My ears were hurting so bad. And you could hear this, you know, just, just the screams. Um, and, uh, you know... I can tell you today there is a big massacre. There are some uh, African 
approach to the intervention to kill our people. Where is Obama? Where is, where is the rest of the world? People are dying on the street. Reveal our message. Our people have been killed. Now thousands of demonstrators, ladies, kids, old people, we are here chanting. We don't want Gaddafi anymore. When we return, hear the stunning conclusion of Alex's story. When Snap Judgment, the overthrow episode continues, stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment. Now, when last we left, Alex Awumi, he's a professional basketball player, a stranger in a strange land, alone on the roof of his apartment building in Benghazi, Libya, having just witnessed a tragedy that he had no power to affect. international human organizations and to the UN please, please they will kill us they will wipe out Benghazi I knew that there was no coming back from these people and I knew for a fact that you know, this, you know, this Gaddafi regime wouldn't let this city get away from them without a fight and I knew that fight would, would have been catastrophic Alex crawls back to his apartment and locks himself in. He calls his teammate Mustafa, his family back home, no answer. He's trapped inside, and he can't go out. Because first of all, there's this connection with Colonel Gaddafi. They knew I was protected by the Gaddafi family. So it kind of looked like I wasn't on their side. And I wasn't there for them anyway. You know, I was there to play basketball. Second, I didn't really, you know, other than being frightened for my life, I really didn't want anybody to mistake me for, you know, one of these mercenaries that were running the street. Colonel Gaddafi had hired thousands of African mercenaries to quash the Libyan uprising, and most of the hired men were black, like the guy on the jeep, like Alex. When the rebels caught him, they were burning these mercenaries alive. That was going through my mind every time I thought about leaving. And I was like, you know, the best place for me is to be in here. You know, you would think that, okay, people back home might be watching this. You know, your mother might be watching a couple hundred people died in Benghazi. So you think, you know, <laughs> you know, as an American, your State Department, you know, they'll, they'll send a private jet, you know, the whole Bruce Willis, Tears of the Sun thing. It just never happened. You know, it just never happened. It did cross my mind to go outside and help these people, but... You know, when you when you see dead bodies in the street, mothers dragging their sons, blood spilling in the gutters, it's tough for you to convince yourself that this is part of your fight. Part of your fight. One day turns into two days, then three and four. But it's hard to keep track, because the shooting never stops. I lived and survived off literally nothing. Like, uh, it came down to me, you know, drinking water out of a toilet. I remember I had these two, uh, these two flower pots on my windowsill, and then you know they were just old and dirty, and you know 
I didn't touch them because every time I lifted them up, there were worms under it. And it literally came down to me, you know, getting these worms and, and putting them inside my body, eating these things, eating cockroaches. You're chewing, you're gagging. Just me talking about it puts a disgusting taste in my mouth. Whatever I needed to eat for me to stay alive or give me another day, I was willing to do it. I was confined in this apartment, this beautiful apartment where, where I first walked in, I had a smile on my face. Now I just wanted to get out of here. I was just so angry. This f that breaking breaking plates like this fine china breaking it like you know this is this is worthless to me right now. You have all these expensive things on the inside, and I would have traded all those things in for a loaf of bread and I think a turkey and some cheese. I was searching for a better situation so bad that I was willing to literally live the same way that Gaddafi was feeling. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to taste everything they had. I wanted to live the way they, they lived and get the most money I could get. While I was doing all this, I wasn't really paying attention to what was going on as far as the way my teammates were living on the other locals. And like I said before, I was kind of ashamed to show my teammates my apartment. They always ask me where I live, but I kind of always change the subject or find some other way to not have them see how I was living. I realized at that point that I, I could have saw the signs, but that I was just so focused into basketball that I didn't really care about anything else. About five or six days, I haven't eaten, you know, obviously proper meals. You're sitting in here, hearing machine guns go off, bombs go off, almost every minute of the day. You know, at this point, you know, I, it's sad to say for me because I'm a Christian man, but I lost all faith in God. There was no reason for me to believe anymore. As time went on, I became delusional. I started seeing myself in different forms, like different ages of my childhood. When I was, you know, four years old, eight years old, 15, 20, 25. The eight-year-old version of myself, I was just a wrecking ball. I just remember playing basketball on a milk crate, you know, nailed to a tree, you know, barefoot. And, like, those were, like, good times. I saw the older versions of myself not happy with a scowl on his face. As I got older, I loved the game, but my reasons for playing were different. You know, it was literally just for the notoriety, for the fame. I hated the game of basketball for bringing me there. Literally, I hated the game of basketball. All, all these years and all this hard work I put in, and it led to this, a massacre, I was done with it. I was done with it. I had a basketball in my, in my apartment. I had a sharp knife, and I literally poked a hole in the basketball. At the two-week mark, as I'm laying on the floor, I hear this beeping noise. So I rushed to, to the bottom of the bed, and my phone is beeping. And I picked this phone up. Hello? Alex, is this you? Yeah. And it's my teammate, Mustafa. I thought I would never hear from this guy ever again. Mustafa tells Alex that he's found a way to escape to Egypt, that there was a driver willing to smuggle them out. All Alex had to do was make his way to Mr. Ahmed, the team president's office, which is a mile away. The next day, I try to make a move for it. It took me about 10, 15 minutes to walk down seven flights of stairs because I was so weak. My knees were buckling every time I walked. By the time I get downstairs, I'm like, you know, there's no way 
I'm walking almost a mile. And I was about to make my way back upstairs. And I just decided to peek out the, the front gate of the apartment. I see the same young kids that I was playing with. But instead of having a soccer ball, now I had machetes, handguns, AK-47s. You know, these guns were bigger than them. I made eye contact with one of them. I was actually scared because he didn't have the same smile on his face. When he saw me, his eyes lit up. Now when he saw me, he just had this stale look on his face. They saw me as somebody that was close to the Gaddafi family. And I was like, man, you know, <laughs> what's about to happen? He walked over to me. My heart was about to pop out of my chest. I wasn't even looking at him. I was looking down the barrel of that gun. So I stood there. He tells me to go upstairs. Stay inside. This isn't good for you. He did it to protect me. I told him why I was down here. I was like, I need to go see Mr. Ahmed, who was our team president. And he was telling me no. He was like, the road to his office was blocked. And I said, I need to go. They took me through the back road. One kid on one side and the kid in front of me, the kid behind me with weapons in their hand, holding me. I don't know how many times I must have fell. These kids are picking me back up. These were like four angels God had brought to me. I just remember seeing a lot of blood. It was just, it was just a lot of blood. Cars on fire, cars smoked out. And these buildings that I, w- I was always familiar with, you know, these little shops and these little small restaurants, now were just burned down. And it's just to look like the city I came to when I first got there. That was sad because, you know, you build a relationship with people that you see every day, just walking on the street, waving a hand to, shaking a hand, and literally two weeks later, you will never see these people ever again. Did they flee? Did they die? It kind of, you know, it kind of got to my heart. The kids drag Alex to the rendezvous point. There, Alex reunites with Mustafa and Mr. Ahmed, while his four young bodyguards take turns defending the building. Inside, Alex finds out that his teammates joined the rebel groups in the uprising, and that some of them didn't make it. When the driver finally arrives, they start the slow, dangerous journey towards a refugee camp in Egypt. There's like six or seven checkpoints, I remember. Every checkpoint, these rebels will drag you out of the car by your collar. And I was scared because when I get pulled over by... um, a rebel, and I showed them my Nigerian passport. You know, they probably thought you was some mercenary trying to leave their country. You know, those, oh man, those are some scary times. It takes 12 hours for Alex to reach the refugee camp, and eventually he makes his way back home. When I finally got to the U.S. after, you know, I left Egypt, I thought that I could go back to my normal life, you know, hanging out with my friends, going out, having a good time. And um, I was, I was depressed. I was depressed. I had a friend of mine go buy these pitch black blinds for me so I could sit in my bedroom all day and just sleep. Because if I was up, I would hear these, I would hear these noises of people screaming. I would hear these gunshots. I would hear these bombs going off. And I just, human interaction, I just couldn't do it. You know, I just couldn't do it because, you know, I was destroyed. I was destroyed. When Muammar Gaddafi was eventually killed, it was, it was sad for me. I cried. I cried instantly because 
you know, those tears that I shed were tears of thousands of people that were killed in Libya because the, the route him and his family took. When Alex gets home to the U.S., it's a year before his mom convinces him to play ball again. You know, I'm not playing basketball for the same reasons I played before. It's not about the money. It's not about the notoriety. Like, I love when kids come up to me after a game, and that just puts a smile on my face. Basketball is therapeutic, no matter what happens, win or lose, preferably to win. The only time I could basically get an escape and be calm is within those lines, 94 by 50 on a 40-minute game. Much love for sharing that story, Alex. To find out more about Alex's incredible story, check out his book, Gaddafi's Point Guard. We'll have a link to it on our website, snapjudgment.org. That piece was produced by Davey Kim and Anna Sussman, with sound design by Leon Morimoto.